What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stan. A big thank you, as always, to you wonderful people who keep this podcast on the go, which is our patrons over on Patreon and our academics on the Bestseller Academy. So if you want me or Mr. D as your one-on-one tutors and you want to be part of an amazing community that's going to help you finish that book, pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com for the academy there. And if you want to support the podcast, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Now there, you're going to find a whole smorgasbord of wonderful stuff. We've got hundreds of hours of extra deep dives. So if you sign up as a chart topper supporter on Patreon, you're going to have access to deep dives on TikTok, on ADHD for authors, on screenwriting, on blurbs, on uh, all sorts of amazing stuff. We had the, the the MD of Bookature. We were talking about chat, GPT. I'm recording this one this week about SEO, search engine optimization, which is amazing, which is one of those things that just makes you more visible online. So all this amazing stuff that we don't normally talk about in the regular podcast and we focus on like a laser beam in our deep dives, pop over uh, to uh, bestsellerexperiment.com support and check it out. Uh, A big thank you to our new patron this week, Rose Keating. Hello, Rose. Uh, Thank you so much for your support and thanks to everyone who's ever supported this podcast. Absolutely. And Mark, you get bonus points for slipping in the word smorgasbord. Mm. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I love I just like want to bet. <laughs> I just I was going to say, do you, do, we, we should ask listeners to send us really bizarre, like multi-syllabic words, yes. foreign yeah, words, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and challenge us to slip them in somehow into an episode. Right. This, is a, this, is, a, this is a patron or academy only thing, right? If you're Definitely. a patron or academy, <laughs> you've earned the right to ask us to slip in a strange, no swear words, yeah, just a strange, weird word into an episode of a podcast. So yeah, send us that right now. And then what we'll do is at the end of the episode, we'll reveal what the word was yeah. and then give you the yeah. definition of what it is when you think, what on earth are they talking about? <laughs> and we can all grow our vocabulary together. Brilliant. Well, there you go. There's a, there's a little little service for, for writing. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> Mr. Stay. You've had a you've had a fun week at uh, MCM Comic Con again. A week. It was only one day. It wasn't a week. It was just one. It felt like a week because it was exhausting. Uh, it was. A, we had a panel on Unwelcome. So me and John, the director, and Paddy, our VFX guy, and actors and stuff. We were up there. Rick Warden and Paul Warren, who played Red Caps, were up there doing a, a whole thing about uh, the movie, which was really good fun. Then I had uh, a bunch of panels with other authors that I moderated, and that was huge fun. It's just so great to. To you know, make new author friends and meet old author friends. Speaking of which, uh, Ben Aronovich was there as well. Who causing <laughs> havoc, no doubt. Well, when he when he turned up, he sort of looked at me and went, "You again?" <laughs> nice. <laughs> which, which, now he he, called, he also said, "You're a shameless self publicist." Now, to be fair. 
uh, I have interviewed him three times in the last year, uh, but he's uh, his publicist asked for me, right? So <laughs> he he clearly didn't know I was going to be there. So he's like, what the hell are you doing here again? Was, well, apparently you asked for me. He says, I don't know. People just tell me where to go. But it did, it did make me think because, you know, Ben is one of Golance's top earners, if not their top earner, you know. he's So he they will lay on stuff for him to go to. You know, you're going here, you're going here. I think he'd just been to Germany. You know, he's just yeah. been doing all sorts of incredible stuff. Whereas me, I'm, you know, poor little thing at the lowest rung of the ladder. I have to pitch myself for this stuff. Totally. Otherwise, I'd be sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. The irony so, is, yes, gets, I am a shameless he, self-publicist. Yeah, but the irony <laughs> is, is ben, Ben's team does more publicity than you could ever do. So he does tons more publicity. Just he doesn't have to do it himself, which is very exactly. nice, obviously. Yeah, 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 He's yeah, got yeah, someone yeah, else doing yeah, all the phone calls yeah. for him. Well, I yeah. think it's brilliant, though. I think it's, um, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think, uh, I think every... Every author that wants to to really kind of, I mean, you have to be a publicist for yourself when you're trying to get a book deal, mm. really. So you've got to get into that mindset of of getting past that that point of like, oh, I'm not very good at kind of talking about my book, you know, one level, or I'm not very good at like pushing myself as an author at another level. There's there's so many areas that everyone has to break through, and it is a challenge. I mean, it's the number one thing I often hear. Um, when I coach people, as they say, how do you promote yourself um, without it feeling kind of egotistical or that you're bigging yourself up? And uh, and we've talked about this before, this idea of like separating separating yourself from your role as an author, as your mm. your profession, vocation, whichever you call it, as a writer. You have to, and and ultimately, the, the biggest the biggest tip I always give people is remember why you're doing it. You know, the main reason you're doing it is because you want people to enjoy your book and to share in what you've written. And that's a very philanthropic thing to do, right? Mm. If somebody, if your book changes someone's life, they're going to be very grateful that they found out about your book through the publicity that you did for it, whether it was directly, indirectly at a, a show by a friend of a friend, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's about stepping out of the way of ourselves and letting our books get out there and, and, um, and we're promoting our books, not ourselves as well. That's the big thing, isn't it? Yeah, I told absolutely. you that story once, didn't I? Of Wayne Dye when his, oh, it's a good one to recall, I think, right now. I think it was a few years ago. The, um, he, he, was tr- he was doing really well. His books had been New York Times bestseller, like book after book after book. And he was one, he was touring and he called his wife. This is back in the day before, before internet, where you could kind of just look online and see where you were in the charts. And he called his wife and he said, oh, I'm just, just calling in. Uh, uh, have you checked the New York Times list? Is, is the new book it's a new book on the list. Like, where is it? Where is it? And she, she said, oh, I've got some bad news, Wayne. You know, he said, you say, where, where am I? Where am I on the, where am I on the, the bestseller list? So I've got some bad news. You're not on the bestseller list. And he went, what? He said, you're not on the bestseller list. He said, what would you, but they, they, the publisher said it was going to be the biggest selling book of, you know, in this entire decade. And she said, you're not on the list. Your book's on the list, but you're not on the list. <laughs> And it was a lovely moment, but it, but it, you know, that's a really important reminder to us all that it's, it's, it's about your book. You know, if we can make it about the book and not about ourselves, you know, uh, then, then that helps us focus on the book that we're promoting. We're not promoting, I mean, ultimately, yeah, we're promoting our author, uh, brand and everything we are about an author, you know, secondary, but if we focus on pushing the book then I think that helps people that maybe are a bit concerned about making that big step out. I mean, I don't know. I was out there sort of, 
pitching myself as well because I need work, people. I need work. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but that's the thing is the books, the, the, that's the whole thing, isn't it? You yeah, know, yeah. the books bring you, bring you opportunities. That's what they always say. It's not just about selling the book to, to make income. It's the opportunities that, that, you know, speaking engagement. So we were just talking about one of our academy, mem- academy members who speaks on cruises. And we're like, oh, that's a, that's that's a, a gig great, I want to get into. Yeah. Gig, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, so there's lots and yeah. lots of opportunities there, yeah. but brilliant stuff. Talking of uh, opportunities, we had a, we, we were approached by, uh, by what we, a very famous presenter, radio personality who's written a book. Yes. Well, what books, this is, uh, yes, lots of books. Uh, this is James Nocherty, who I think is a bit of a national treasure here in the UK. Uh, he's a special correspondent for BBC News. Uh, he's a reporter from all around the world. But for me, he presented the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 for 21 years. And this was while I was a rep. So while I was driving around the country as a sales rep, I put on Radio 4 in the morning. So you'd have the Today programme, which is how you got the, you know, the news of what was going on during the day. And James Nocherty had had one of those trusted voices that you listen to. So I've 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 been listening to him, you know, out on the road on the M25 in all weathers kind of thing, you know. So it's um it was wonderful to to speak to him for this interview. Uh, but as well as writing non-fiction, he's also the author of the Will Fleming thrillers, uh, the latest of which The Spy Across the Water is set in 1985 and it takes us from Washington to Ireland uh, to the Highlands of Scotland and it's a proper page-turning thriller. So we discuss writing around real events in history, tips for writing spies and journalists and politicians, and what to do with characters that just wander in. Now, quick note with this one, James couldn't get his camera to work on Zoom. So so it was weird for me because I couldn't see him, but I could hear his voice. It was like Radio 4 was talking back to me. Um, So if you're watching this on YouTube, there's no moving image of James, just so you know that we put up a little photo of him. So just, just to let you know why that is. Fantastic. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the legend that is James Nocherty. James Nocherty, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, Mark, and it's an absolute delight to talk to you and uh, the writers and others who might be eavesdropping on us. <laughs> well, it's a genuine pleasure to speak to you. I can't tell you, how, your voice has accompanied me on many long early morning car journeys. So it's, it's a delight to speak to you. Rather than make you feel. Uh, <laughs> you well, let's let's start by talking about your your latest political thriller, The Spy Across the Water, which is the third in the Will Fleming series. And this is set in the mid eighties. You got the backdrop of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. You got the Gordievsky KGB double agent affair, and then I hear. Will Fleming is his uh, ambassador in Washington. Tell us more. That's a very good introduction, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> it is set in 85. And one of the lovely things about setting a story like this then is that you don't have to worry about email trails <laughs> or mobile phones or anything like that. So it is in that sense old fashioned. But it's also, I think, very contemporary because it's about how someone deals with political crises. Here's a guy, Fleming, who was trained as a MI6 intelligence officer and did that during the 60s, apparently successfully, so I'm told, and had a brief spell in government. He went into politics for reasons which are beyond me, but anyway, he did because it was a good plot for a story. And he's now ended up as ambassador in Washington, but he finds himself inexorably drawn back to the old game because if really twin political crises that confront him 
One in particular, which involves, and I won't go into too much detail, but it involves the rekindling of an old friendship, in many ways the most professionally fulfilling and personally very deep friendship that he's had in the course of his professional life. And it brings along, as these things always do for people like him, a sense of danger, uh, a sense of obligation, not just to his government and all that that represents, but apart from the duty of, you know, of office, of public service, if you like, uh, obligation to friends and family and people who are going to be hurt or possibly even might lose their lives as a consequence of this. And I think what the book really is about in the end is the solitary life of someone who's a very public figure. You know, he's a he's a good ambassador. He's he's cool. He's smooth. He can handle a reception very well. He's good at his job. He can write a telegram with the best of them and all these things. It seems easy, although it isn't, but he does it very well. But at heart, he is a man alone. I mean, he says at one point in the book to his sidekick, who's running the MI6 station in the Washington embassy, the thing about solitary men is that they get comfort by being alone together. And in that sense, it's a timeless story. It's about a man, really. But I hope it's a decent plot as well. well he's a fascinating figure because you you have described him, I believe in one of the books, as the cat who walks alone. Uh, where did he first come from? What was that? What was the first spark that, that brought him to life? You know, I'd been a journalist all my life in newspapers for 15 years or so, and then at the BBC. And so the whole business of representing public life in news stories is, has been my life. Um, and frankly, to fiction, isn't a big one. You know, when you produce a story on the BBC, uh, it is true. <laughs> That's our job. At least as the old journalist saying goes, it was true when I wrote it. <laughs> um, we're in the business of telling uh, things as we think they are. It's quite fun to make them up. And it came to me in a slightly backwards way. I first worked at Westminster in the mid to late 70s, which was a pretty chaotic and difficult time. It was the end of one era and the beginning of the next, the Thatcher era from 1979. And I thought it would be fun to write a kind of Westminster novel, uh, you know, a thriller with no great pretensions to, to being a piece of literary fiction. And then I conceived the idea of having somebody who had been trained as a spy but fallen into politics there's a crisis at the heart of government, and he's asked to sort it out because that's the kind of thing he's supposed to be able to do. And he rather enjoys it. And the crisis, which unfolds over five or six days, reveals to him is that the most enormous events, bloody, difficult, tragic in many ways, can happen. And nobody out there beyond the walls of Westminster has the faintest idea that it's happened at all. And that brings you to the essence of Fleming, I think, and people in his trade, to me, and it's why I think it's fascinating. He lives with the knowledge that all the most fulfilling, thrilling, exciting, daring, clever things that he's done in his life are the very things he can't tell anybody about. <laughs> and going through life with that knowledge that when you're at your best, it has to be in complete secrecy, is, I think, a tension that just makes mm. the whole game fascinating. And I also think that that business and journalism have got quite a bit in common. Um, you're 
scrabbling around for bits of information. You're trying to put two and two together. You're trying to build a, a picture out of little bits of a jigsaw. And so I think the minds of people who are in that game are a bit like the minds of decent journalists. I hope so anyway. So that was the attraction. Brilliant stuff. I, I'd like to ask about the period as well because and the timeline for the whole series, because as I understand it, and for, forgive me if I get this wrong, so Madness of July, which was the first book, I believe was set in the mid-70s, and Paris Spring takes 68, and now we're back to 85. So what's the, what's the thinking in the, in, the, in the hopping back and forth in the timeline? This is an embarrassing question. Um, because <laughs> I wrote the second one in time in the series was the first to be written. Right. And after right. I'd written The Madness of July, which is... It's an unspecified year, and we don't know whether it's a Labour government or a Tory government. So it's it's a real setting, but I didn't want to get involved in real figures because the minute you do that, you end up disappearing down a hundred rabbit holes and you yes. have to explain who's who. Um, but once Fleming had gone through that adventure in which you know there is blood, uh, there is danger, but there is in the end a very successful outcome which he manages – I felt that it was important to explain where he'd come from because people keep going around in that book saying, oh, well, he was terribly good when he was at MI6, so he can sort this out. Well, if he was terribly good at MI6, it's about time I explained it. Right. So I went back to Paris and when better to set a book in Paris than in 1968, uh, student uprisings, it looked as if the whole uh, superstructure the old France was going to collapse. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, at the height of the Vietnam War, it was a time of, uh, you know, youth culture, student rebellion and so on. Fleming's in the middle of it in the British Embassy in Paris, and he ends up in the midst of an extremely uh, complex and in the end satisfying for him Cold War spy story. So that sort of explains his background. And then we leap forward to 1985, and I thought, well, I don't want to do another one with him in government because he's frustrated about government. So for some reason, which nobody has enlightened me about, he's plucked out of it and made ambassador to Washington. He was a junior foreign office minister in the 70s. And he's there for some reason. And two problems confront him. One, you alluded to this, Oleg Gordievsky, our most famous, at least as far as we know, our most mm. successful spy inside the Soviet Union, uh, was flirting with exposure, really, and was involved in extremely delicate negotiations with the Irish government about what became known as the Anglo-Irish Agreement uh, of 1985, which was the first time the Irish government in Dublin was involved in affairs in the north. And it was really the first step along the road that led to the Good Friday Agreement nearly 15 years later or 13 years later. Um, and it so happened, I knew Washington very well, I mean, still do, but I knew it for the first time, really, in the 80s. And so it was natural to set it in a place that I knew, because to me, and I'm sure people listening to this will agree, uh, if you're writing this kind of story, which, you know, frankly, is a, a thriller, adventure story, however you want to put it, really that sense of place is essential if you're going to create any tension that makes any sense. So... I always want to write in a setting that I know, you know, Westminster, Paris in 1968. I wasn't there in 68. I was too young, but I know Paris very well. Washington, I know very well. So I was at home there. And of course, Fleming himself uh, comes from Scotland. He's got a family 
lair, rather grander than any family lair I had in Perthshire, but I know the territory very well. And so he goes back there for solace and refreshment and indeed inspiration. So it's easy to write about that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a, it's a natural uh, urge to you know, talk about places I know and what effect they can have on you. So that's really how the structure of the thing came about. You know, writers often say that characters come upon them surprisingly or stealthily. Somebody wanders on with a walk-on part in a book, and the author thinks, oh, where did you come from? I rather <laughs> like you. And the next thing you know, there's a book about them. With Fleming, I found him a fascinating character, and I wanted to, I know this sounds terribly twee, I wanted to find out more about him, therefore I had to make it up. Mm. Yes, oddly, that, that that very thing happened to me this morning with a character, and I just realised I, I probably added about 30,000 words to my next book. But, you know, that's uh, that's part of the fun of being a novelist. Now, And also the, the jumbling up of the timeline. I think you're in pretty good company there. I'm pretty sure Tom Clancy did the same thing with the Jack Ryan novels. He he, hopped, he popped back and forth all the time, so I think that's, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that worries people. I always say if someone says, Mark, at a book event, you know, at a book festival or a, a signing, um, you know, which one should I read first? And I will say, well, in a way it is a series, but mm. it's not a series that depends on uh, either reading them in a particular order or having read one in order to enjoy the next. And it reads these by across the water. They might want to go back, find out a little bit more about this guy in one of the two previous books, which are both in paperback, of course, and the paperback of this one will be out in November. Fantastic. Now, one thing you you talked about, you've said it, you know, the novels start in the, in the 60s and the 70s and 80s. There's no email paper, paper trails, that sort of thing, which is does make the life of a thriller writer a, a little easier because there there isn't that convenience of technology. But also you have set these in the era of John le Carre. Uh, you've called your hero Fleming, you know, Ian Fleming. <laughs> Was there any kind of trepidation about setting the books in this time and in that territory? It certainly wasn't at the time. And I've thought about this a lot since. I suppose that deep in the back of my mind, there must have been, you know, a Bond click that went off (laughs) when I was hunting around for a name that that wasn't weird, not too stagey a name. You you know yourself how difficult it is to get that right. Because Mm. if it sounds too odd, it's just, you know when it's right, I think. I'm not talking as a particularly experienced fiction writer, but that has been my experience. And so it came, and I gave him a Y in his name rather than an I, just to mm. give it a slight handle, recognisable on the page. There was absolutely no conscious sense of an homage to Fleming mm. at all. Naturally, I read all the Bond books. I was a teenager in the 60s. What else did you do? <laughs> um, well, all sorts of things. But anyway, that <laughs> that as well. And... Um, as far as Lucari is concerned, um, I did an event the other day with um, Charles Cumming, among others, and a great admirer of Charles's books. And he made the point that if you look at, broadly speaking, the, the spy genre, there are two sort of distinct approaches. One is absolutely uh, robustuous street chases, tension from the first paragraph to the last, action, action, action. Mm. The other 
is much more interior about the character. Now, there's obviously a huge amount of overlap somewhere in the middle. But those are the two sort of wings, I suppose, of the whole business. And I'm kind of nearer that character wing than the action wing. Although I hope there's enough action in this to keep people going. And there's, you know, a little bit of breathlessness, I hope, and certainly tension. But I'm more interested in Fleming as somebody wrestling with the question of what the right thing to do is. Mm. Not simply the right thing to do from the point of view of all the rest of it, but the right thing for his for himself, for his family, who have suffered as a consequence of uh, his role, and he's terribly conscious of that. Um, it, it's not giving anything away because it's in the first two paragraphs uh, in saying that the beginning of the book uh, springs out of a family tragedy, which he then has to try to investigate. So everything with him is very personal. It has to be. And I think with people in that position, yeah, it's about action. Yes, it's about being clever. Yes, it's about making that leap, you know, cutting the Gordian knot, all these things. Of course, it's about that. But in the end, it's about finding some kind of satisfaction and balance inside yourself. And that is the thing that fascinates me more. But I read endlessly, you know, thrillers, spy stories of all kinds. Um, I just love it, whether it's Ed McBain in the 87th Precinct in New York, which is one of my absolute best way of spending a night, um, almost. Um, uh, James Lee Burke, uh, but also old classic thriller writers in this country, you know, going back to Dayton and so on. So I'm very eclectic in, in what I read and enjoy. And of course, it's shaming if you pick up one of these books and you look, why can't I write a paragraph like that? But we all have that experience. <laughs> we do. I mean, James Lee, I used to sell his books. I worked for his publisher. The man is a poet. He's, I mean, to compare yourself to him, he's, a, he's an absolute genius. <laughs> I, you know, I regard myself as an evangelist going around telling people who don't know about this man. Yeah. And I remember once standing in a bookshop when there was a decent bookshop at Heathrow. This must be about 25 years ago. <laughs> and I was going to America and I was climbing along the shelves because, as you will know, you can't go on a plane with fewer than three books. In case <laughs> it doesn't work and you need a start, you know. Anyway, and I felt a hand on my shoulder and it was a man who taught me American literature at university quarter of a century before and I haven't seen him since and I was terribly fond of him and you know he had done a lot for me in turning me on to various things that had become lifelong obsessions and how are you and all the rest and he said "Um, what are you doing and I said well I'm buying a book and he said have you heard of James Lee Burke (laughs) and I said no and he said well I think you would enjoy him and I said why and he said the immortal line he's a cross between Raymond Chandler and William Faulkner and I thought, oh, that's good enough for me. And I went and took, found two paperbacks, uh, New Orleans ones, on the shelf and took them. And I never looked back at He's a genius. He is. And if people genius. don't know him, and most writers I think, do now, but uh, you know, some of them set in the, in the low underbelly of New Orleans with an alcoholic ex-cop, and others set in Montana, where he lives most of the time now. And... The scene setting is incomparable, I think. Mm. Well, we obviously yeah. agree on this. Yeah. Anyway, yes. so I read widely. 
<laughs> I be, I, let's talk I, that sense of authenticity because this isn't a Bondian fantasy it does have action in it but it's very much grounded in the real world as you say it's, you know, it ties in with things like the Troubles and the Gordievsky affair yes. I believe you spoke to a spy before writing the first book is that true and what sort of what, well, did that give you a steer I, as to the tone of the story I don't, I don't know I, I've come across a few people in my time who well, some I know, but others I don't probably work in that world. And I always say to people, you always know if you've had a conversation with a spy for half an hour because you understand that he or she has discovered everything about you and you've discovered absolutely <laughs> nothing about them in the course of the conversation. Uh, one thing I did uh, discipline myself about was this, that because I knew that the background to this story uh, was a set of real events. I didn't want to get too bogged down in that because I knew that if I did, I would write about them as if I were a journalist. And I absolutely didn't want to do that. So I didn't ring anybody up. I knew somebody, for example, well, two people, one on each side who were deeply involved in the drafting of the Anglo-Irish Agreement and all the difficult negotiations between Margaret Thatcher and Gareth Fitzgerald about the, the Taoiseach at the time, about the document and what it meant. But I realised if I started to open that door and talk to people about what really had gone on, then, you know, I'd be lost. The Gordievsky element of the story is slightly different. Ben McIntyre uh, has written a wonderful account of Gordievsky's time and his escape and I did talk to the person who had made up Gordievsky's escape plan about wow. seven or eight years before it had to be put in place. Um, I don't think he knows that I know that he did. But anyway. <laughs> So I've, I've come across some of these characters, but I it certainly don't have an inside channel to it. And I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff in there that has them rolling about in laughter and saying, well, it's not like that. <laughs> um but I'm not pretending to be authentic, but I'm pretending, I think, to get inside the head of one guy who has this job to do and has this background to cope with. And I think that's actually about character, not about what do you call the guy who's the number two in, you know, and all that stuff. So I'm I'm deliberately steering away from being too authentic. The words, for example, Thatcher and Reagan, to people's delight, I'm sure, never appear in the book, although, of course, clearly it's in that period. And the whole action is taking place in that amphitheatre. But you never really know. There's only one real person in the book. Unfortunately, he died in 1987, so it's OK. Right. <laughs> you mentioned thinking like a journalist there. And whenever we have someone who uh, has an expertise, I, I like to find out what uh, what we get wrong about that as writers. So journal journalists in particular have a pretty tough time of it, particularly in spy fiction. They're generally nosy, sleazy. They often get, I mean, you know, Mick Heron, you know, they get pushed under trucks and that kind of thing. It's uh, Yes. What do we get wrong about journalists in, in our fiction and what could we do better? It's a really good question because I've uh, often observed that when you get a political drama on television, not talking about fiction on the page now, but televised fiction, there are two things that never quite seem to work. 
One is any scene that is set in the House of Commons with people standing up waving order papers and shouting here, here, or <laughs> shut up. It's always just not quite right. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is consistently wrong, and I'm not sure why, if you get a crowd of journalists outside somebody's house, you know, doorstepping, yeah. um, whoever it is, Jeremy Thorpe, actually the Thorpe saga was better done than almost any other political drama and television I've ever seen. But it somehow doesn't seem real. And I'm not sure why that is. The problem is that it comes in all sorts of different guises to state the blindingly obvious. If you look at the case that's going on at the moment, the Prince Harry, Elton John phone hacking case, Mm -hmm. you hear some pretty uh, extraordinary stories about, um, you know, 11,000 requests from one newspaper to um, a character who used, shall we say, rather underhand methods to get information, including raking through dustbins. There's that end of the business. And then there is a sort of rather egg-headed intellectual column writing end, and one of those turns up in Paris Spring, actually. Mm -hmm. And so... I think the key with journalism is to represent it through figures who simply are what they are, but don't represent a whole trade any more than a particular politician can be held to represent all the doings of that, because that would be absurd. I think what people sometimes get wrong is that they they try to suggest that this is representational of the whole game. One of the things Le Carre did brilliantly, I think, was that not just with journalists, but with others, he would have one figure who loomed up, Jerry Westerby in, in uh, The Honourable Schoolboy and Tinker Taylor, for example, yeah. and you just think that's absolutely right. The scene where he and Smiley get together in the old bar uh, downstairs somewhere in Fleet Street, is just, it's pitch perfect. You, that's the way he would speak. It's what he would do. And he is nothing except himself. But the self is presented absolutely perfectly and realistically. The danger comes when you try to represent the whole breed. Mm. And at that point, I think whether it's journalists politicians, any other class of human being, you tend to run into trouble. Some people can do it, but very, very few. Now, I think it's about getting an individual character and knowing, you know this, knowing when it rings true. Mm-hmm. Is it authentic? Is that what they would say? And I think if you're happy with that in your own head, that's really all you can do and hope that other people agree with you. Excellent. Excellent answer. Thank you, James. Also, now we've established you love books, three books on a flight. That's, you know, uh, is it true that you use the lockdown to organise your books, including by numbering the shelves? It is. (laughs) Um, Tell tell us more about that. It's a good story, which I'm very happy to... Our son, uh, a few years ago, probably beginning of lockdown, uh, and he got a Christmas present, which was nice. Then he said, it's an app, a free app. I thought, well, well, that's very kind of you, but not a very exotic Christmas present. But anyway, <laughs> he said, no, no, there's something that comes with it. So he gave us this app, which is called Libib, L-I-B-I-B. And it is an app which will organise your books. You scan the ISBN number of the book and it'll 
find it in its database and give you the author, the date, all the stuff you need. If it's too old to have an ISBN number, you can put it in by hand. Right. It will then organize them by author, by date, by genre. And all you need to do, and this is the trick, is organize your books on the shelves, and then it will have the place you can find them right. on the app. And the present that Andrew gave us actually was somebody to come and spend about three days doing the organization. That was the present. But my goodness, because we've got a heck of a lot of books in Edinburgh and a heck of a lot of books in London. Right. And knowing where you can find it, it's just brilliant. And because it, it goes all haywire every now and again, and you have to sort of redo it. But it's brilliant. I mean, if you've got most people listening to this will have thousands of books and there'll be piles, you know, lying around and all the rest mm. of it. If you get that app, I tell you, it's the beginning of the end of all your troubles. It's wonderful. <laughs> and going through your old books like that, because it's, you know, we moved house about six years ago and you end up packing everything into boxes and then getting it out. Uh, and if you're yeah. like me, as you're taking it out of the boxes, those books will take you back to who you were when you read them and, and, and they can inspire as well. Were there any books as you were, as you were filing them away that, that inspired you? I Yes, constantly. And I've got exactly the same experiences as you and i'm sure many people listening have know this you find a book you know from school days for example mm. you can open it and you know what's on the next page a child's book my copies of treasure island and kidnapped and so on which i grew up with i can turn and i know what the illustration is on the next page i know the smell you know student books uh, books that I remember coming across a book um, in the course of this great activity that I'd read on a long train journey, and it brought it all back. Mm. copy of Lord of the I remember reading Lord of the Rings on a Greyhound bus uh, as a student in America in 1970. It's the first time I'd been there. Went round the country, which we all did in those days, with three friends on a Greyhound bus, uh, literally coast to coast and north to south. And I read The Lord of the Rings for the first time. And I came across one of those big ones. Uh, and, it, it, you know, I could smell the Greyhound bus on it, almost <laughs> literally. Uh, not very nice. And uh, so I, oh, I think they're friends. And that's why people say, well, why don't you get rid of a book X or book Y? And you, sometimes you just can't. Mm. Okay, if it's one you didn't like and you only opened, you only got halfway through it, you didn't think much of it. Okay, that can go to Oxfam. Mm -hmm. But I probably, like you, Mark, I've got the experience of going up with a sort of wheelbarrow every now and again, feeling proud of myself to Oxfam. And then you go in and you think, oh, that looks quite interesting. <laughs> Buy it. And then you take it home and you discover it was a book that you gave Oxfam the last time you were there. <laughs> anyway, uh, but oh, yeah, they're, they're friends. And you touch them and you feel them and you smell them. That's what a book is. It's it, it, we've all talked for the last 25 years about electronic publishing and so on. Personally, I don't get on with uh, reading on screen. I know plenty of people uh, who do, who, mm. you know, with great pleasure. It's fine if you can do it because it, it's so portable. Personally, I still like the old book, mm -hmm. and even if the spine is falling apart and so on. One of the reasons I love American publishers because I think they're – their book design and all the rest of it is far superior to ours in general. Uh, but the physical presence of a book uh, that you can touch and is with you and in your pocket or in your bag, I think is uh, is a joy, really. And um, 
I can't understand people who don't feel that. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you, Jed. What's coming next? Are we going to have more adventures from Will Fleming or uh, is there we something are. else on the horizon? Uh, Great. I can exclusively announce, well, Ooh, it's we hardly exclusive, <laughs> no, but I, um, Head of Zeus, my publisher, a wonderful bunch, um, mm. which is now part of Bloomsbury. Um, when the paperback comes out in November, the plan is that in the back there will be the first chapter of the next one. Ooh. Now, you'll realise that this depends on something, namely... <laughs> But it has been written. Uh, but I've got I've got a feeling for the next one. All I will say is, if you're dealing with somebody like Fleming, who was around Europe in the '60s, worked in Paris, and we know that he had escapades before that. Uh, he was in politics. He's been in Washington. Sooner or later, don't we? So, Berlin, here we come. Excellent. James Nocty, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Thanks so much. And uh, folks, The Spy Across the Water is out there now, as well as The Madness of July and Paris Spring. Lap them all up. You won't regret it. Absolutely fantastic reads. James, uh, great speaking to you and hope to speak to you again soon. Mark, I've really enjoyed that. And um, one of the things I enjoyed doing with the book uh, was recording the audio myself, which is is such fun. It does remind you that there are paragraphs that you might have cast in a different way had yes. you been aware. <laughs> so anybody who doesn't fancy wading through it can also get the audio and paperback in November. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thanks, Mark. Oh, it's really strange, isn't it? Hearing the voice of someone you've heard on the radio for so <laughs> many years and then hearing yeah. them on the podcast talking about a book mm. they've written. It just, it really messes with your, with your senses, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's That's a real treat. Real it's, treat. it's so lovely. I mean, we've seen, we've seen this, haven't we? Um, we've been here many times before journalists turned authors. I mean, big one that yeah. comes to mind, Michael Connolly. I mean, the two interviews we've done with him, we've gone back in his whole world as a, a journalist but uh, as a broad broadcasting journalist that's uh, that's a whole and 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 the things that james has done such as like correspondence of so many different areas as well such a great stamping ground for like building up knowledge and uh, so many rich stories and real life experiences that he can draw from that must just be a well of a well of uh, knowledge that he can have there for all his books Absolutely. There's one quote that he said there, which is, we're in the business of telling things as we think they are. And I think there he was referring to journalism, but I think that applies completely to being a novelist as well. It's, it's uh, especially now in the age of AI, where if you want to write something that's kind of, and, you know, this stuff will sell, this stuff will do well, stuff that's just, you know, the formulaic romance formulate crime novel formulate science fiction or whatever you know that's ai is going to figure that out soon uh whereas if you have a voice if you have a position in the world if you have a take on things uh i think you are setting yourself up to be a voice for the future and and a writer so i think you do need to uh like a like a journalist, you know, you're, you're searching for nuggets of truth, but you're also looking for an angle and you're looking to put your voice out there. And he also talked about finding some kind of satisfaction and balance in yourself. And I think that also comes from being a writer. This is us trying to figure out what the world is about, figure out uh, 
to, to, to present the world as we see it in the form of a story and characters and adventures and, and, and these situations. So I think it's more important ever before to develop, find your voice, develop your voice, be you and be weird. All right. Be strange. All those little things that, uh, we think no one else is going to be interested in. Those are strangely enough, the things that often turn out to be universal, but also make your voice distinct and make you stand out. I mean, you talk to agents and publishers and that's what they'll tell you over and over is what they're looking for is a voice. Uh, so yes, you know, AI can string together a sentence and there are hacks out there who are going to take chunks of AI to put together a novel, but they won't have anything to say. They won't have a voice. They won't have that unique little thing that makes us go back and reread. You know, he, James was talking about reading Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, and, and we were talking again about going back and reading books that that we've loved in the past and things like that. And James Lee Burke, you know, we, we're just eulogizing about James Lee Burke, who is a brilliant, brilliant pro stylist, but also writes great thrillers as well. By the way, if you want to start with a book, start with Tin Roof Blowdown by James Lee Burke. You'll, you can thank me later. Um, so, yeah, you know, this this is this is what we love about authors and stories having that unique voice that no one else i mean we were talking about before recording using um chat gpt to sort of mimic ourselves uh, yeah. and you remember we just speaking of ben Aronovich, we 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 had it do an episode with ben Aronovich, didn't we or all Julian Barr did that, didn't he? He, he, he yeah. They asked, they asked, they asked you know, in the voice of ben Aronovich, and it and it was around around like writing outlines and just to kind mm. of see what it created. And it, it managed yeah. to draw and, and a And it was a parody. It was a parody, yeah, it was, yeah. But it wasn't him. It wasn't Ben. It wasn't Ben. You know, Ben will surprise you. I Like I said, I've interviewed him three times in the last year. Every time he came up with something new, every time he surprised me. I also think there's something really important that you've touched on there, Mark, as well, about everyone worrying about AI and, and, and AI replacing authors. But the thing that I don't think AI will be able to do is – carry through that voice so for example mm. when we think about our favorite authors we buy their books not because the premise of the book sounds great or it's got a lovely cover or title we buy it because we loved their previous book and we loved them as an author absolutely and the voice absolutely. carries through each book now I, I suspect with ai you know if you if you generate a book eventually which is and I know they've done tests and, and it's not there yet in terms of like making it as good as, you know, some of the best-selling books that we know and love. But I don't know if AI will be able to carry through the consistency of the voice, which is the thing that we have to remember as authors. And this is the this is one of the most important things people can ever remember. You know, you can write a book that's been written, you know, the, the genre of which has been written a million times and the, the plot structure has been written a million times. But the thing that's always unique is how you tell the story, and it, that comes down to mm -hmm. your voice. And that's the that's the one thing that we all have that differentiates ourselves from every other author. And when we talk about who are your favorite authors, that's an easier question to answer because we've collected all our favorite authors over our lifetime, and it, it really comes. You know, we don't we don't when someone when an author dies. We don't say, oh, there'll never be another Lord of the Rings. We focus on the fact it's the author who died and there won't be another yeah. Tolkien book, right? And yeah. that's 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 the point. It's the human story that and the human journey that we're all going through. And and I and I do wonder how um how AI can replicate a voice. I mean, 
you know, it'll be, uh, can AI do a series? Who knows? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure, I'm sure if um, once the, once the books go into public domain and the Tolkien estate, you know, is, is no longer with us, I'm sure someone out there will, will, I mean, publishers, publishers do it to Tolkien anyway. They will find what, you know, some scrap on, you know, half written manuscript and say, look, this is the new Tolkien that we found and someone's come in and filled in the gaps. Yes. Uh, And the person they come in to fill in the gaps, they might replace that with AI, you know, uh, it happens to all the. Fa- this is why Terry Pratchett asked that all his hard drives be crushed by a steamroller, so there'd be no chance of uh, yeah. of any old. Although that said, there is there's a couple of Terry books coming out later in the year, and you have to wonder, you know, where's where's that coming from? Is that is that uh, is that uh, steam steamroller driver who's like seen an opportunity <laughs> with his with his USB thumb drive? <laughs> I mean, we uh, talk about spy novels and stuff like that. I when I worked at Orion, we published Robert Ludlum. And we got other authors to write in the style of Robert Ludlum. So we've had humans doing it. In fact, we, he'd been dead like 10 years and we still got people ringing up saying, is he available for events? Uh, but it's, uh, so, you know, the, the brand value. Uh, Wilbur Smith died last year. But just before he died, he signed a 10-book deal with Pam McMillan. And those books are going to come. You know, there right. are, I, in fact, I know the author who doesn't. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is sort of going on anyway, uh, but there's an acknowledgement that it's not the real thing. But people do, people do like the comfort of that familiar brand. And that's the, that's the thing we should be worried about. Because the other thing is publishers, the last 10 years have been pretty crap at developing new brands. They haven't been great. At, they've been relying on those big names and, and uh, getting other authors to sort of mimic them. Um, so that is what, that's probably what we should be worried about. But in terms of it replacing us, uh, I'm not worried about that at all. I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be, you know, counter to what I said earlier, I wonder if in the future there's going to be the ability for an author to license their voice, like the same way an actor's licensing their image and, and yeah. their voice, literally their voice, you know, that Arnold Schwarzenegger will be like making Terminator films in like 2300 20, yeah. or whatever it will be. And it'd be interesting to see if it does get to a point where there's actually a longer term revenue stream beyond, you know, for your estate, beyond your death, where if you're a successful author, AI can continue to create your future books yeah. but oh that but, that'll totally happen that but you see totally here's the happen. thing if you've if you've then got all the written work that you've ever written and including all the unpublished stuff that we all have on our hard drive you feed that into ai as part of the modeling you know of what it can then generate but oh, down the and rabbit then, hole i mean and then you bring you bring in someone like me to sort of tidy it up and they get yeah. paid pennies to do it that's right yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about this idea as well. James, James, I had this lovely vision of James's library in his house. He talks about that. Mm. In fact, houses, <laughs> libraries, you know, are plenty. And it made me realize, you know, Ian also said something which I felt very, rang very true with me is that he just loves books and he still hasn't really shifted to the electronic medium. And I, I do feel the same. And it's interesting because it's not quite gone to where the, where music has gone with this, where, you're kind of like a, a vinyl affectionado and there's a small <laughs> section of vinyl for you in the store. I still think there's a large number of people that just love books. And I think books have a, more of a longevity, a physical longevity than, than the way we've seen music digitally disappear, you know, not digitally, but physically disappear in many ways. But um, 
this this question of the importance of surrounding ourselves for with books for inspiration like we talk many times about how when we walk into a library or, or a beautiful bookshop it's like this there's an, there's an ex, it's an experience isn't it it's something you feel you don't get that when you pick your kindle off the shelf even though you might have exactly the same books on your kindle so how important is it for us to keep ourselves surrounded by books as as writers do you think well, there's, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's an, I'll have an obvious bias because you just have to look behind me. That's just one minor that's, section that's of, not a of zoom the library. Is it? No, it's not. It's that's not. a and, real bookshelf. And the top shelf is all Terry Pratchett. So, you know, and that's, that's deliberate. That's, that's to inspire me on days when it's not working to think, you know, and I've got Robert Rankin over there and I've got, uh, what have we got? We've got Hitchhikers. So we've got Douglas Adams over there. There um, is, there's something marked to be said for, and and this is me going off on a kind of a, a bit of a spiritual tangent, but there, I do believe that we in in our it, whatever we print, whether it's words in a book or music on a you know, even a digital MP3 or a stream or a download, but anything that we that we put into something and it gets replicated, there's a certain energy, if you like, that's stored even within that replication, and that's the experience of what we feel when we walk into a room full of books. It's it's all of the time and effort and thought and blood, sweat and tears that have gone into writing that book that we kind of somehow on a totally subconscious level, we, we pick up on it. Like there's some kind of energy that travels a bit like I always use the example of Jurassic Park and the the mosquito that's trapped in the piece of amber. <laughs> amber. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's and it's stored there for like millions of years. And it and I think of like when I so, for example, if I write a piece of music and 10 years later, it makes someone cry who listens to it 10 years later. Like, what? how did that, how is it still having that effect? It's something about the emotion that's in that piece of music that affects the person, the emotion in the words that are written in the book that affects the person. But they're all stored in this little kind of little mini suitcase and they're on your shelf. And they're, and because I feel different when I walk into a library, I'm just like, I, I, I feel this kind of like, wow, this is yeah. like an amazing collection of work. I mean, we all, we all need that thing in our life. I'm not a religious person, but make no mistake, that thing behind that me is, is a shrine. That's totally. a shrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. I, mean, I, I took time to arrange them in a particular yeah. order. And I've got trinkets around there as well, little little tokens, uh, icons, false idols. If you, I mean, in fact, there is that gold thing is the idol from the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so, you know, we've got all these little trinkets that – if I were to drop dead tomorrow and a stranger was to walk in here, they'd know exactly the kind of nerd that I am, you know. They go, but it they tells them about, go, oh, it, right. It, but it tells a 50 them about, year old man who does Lego, right. Yeah. Okay. No, but it, it tells it tells them something about about and it also like it's if 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 someone said, So what are your influences, Mark? You'd just say, Here's a photo of my bookshelf, right? I mean, you wouldn't even need to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's something about there's something about the physical nature of books, which I think is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is filling a gap. I mean, you talked earlier about vinyl. Um, vinyl, you know, 180 gram vinyl. I, I get some of that. I've got a record deck just here, just out of shot. The sound isn't better than lossless digital. It isn't. Anyone who tells you that is talking complete cods all Vinyl is about ritual. Okay. You have to turn on all these devices. Uh, you have to balance things and make sure they're right. And then you slip the holy item out of the, the, out of the mm. sleeve and then you place it on the platter. And you is a little ritual uh, that we go through in order to 
achieve a little bit of magic, which is that crackle that you get on vinyl. Uh, that's what that's about. So the, all these things, you know, these physical objects are important. This is not to diss ebooks because I know people who can't hold uh, physical ebooks, uh, physical books, you know, hardcovers are too heavy. The print is too small. The print is too faint or whatever. Ebooks and the convenience of them and is yeah, amazing. Yeah, going away and just being able yeah, to pack one. Absolutely. It's brilliant. Not, not, not to diss no. ebooks, but there, there is something about the physical, absolutely, the physical object. Like, uh, same with streaming and cinema. I remember going to see The Empire Strikes Back at the Odeon Leicester Square with my dad because it was a day, it was an event, it was a ritual. We went to a church of cinema. Uh, my dad opened a bag of, we were on the balcony, opened a bag of popcorn and spilled it on the people below. That's a communion. You know, I just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just remember, I remember all of those things because we made, whereas I've watched countless films on streaming, but I, I hardly remember them. They don't leave a footprint in the same way because I was just sat on my couch watching them. Whereas books that I've, you know, taken on holiday with me. I mean, I will always remember get finding a copy of The Omen by David Seltzer when I was like 11 years old in a secondhand, it's like 10p in a secondhand English language bookshop in Spain and reading that and that being one of the first horror books I ever read. And I think I've still got it somewhere. You know, so little tokens, little physical things, they are so important. Yeah. They also mark a time in your life. Like you said, you know, if you found that Absolutely. book, Absolutely. if you found that book, it would bring you back to that bookshop on holiday in Spain and, and just, the experience just, just, you had of yeah. reading it, the places you read that when you were on. I always remember reading the Stephen King book um, on the front lawn of my grandparents' villa in Spain when I was 14 right. and I went over by myself to stay with them for a week. And it just, it just, for some reason, just, I don't have a photo of it. I don't know where that image comes from, but it's burnt in my memory. Absolutely. It's just, it's just as James magic. said, it's, it's like the Lord of the Rings that he, he could still smell the Greyhound bus on it, which is yeah. so true. Yeah. But Fantastic. by the way, listening back, I don't think we mentioned the name of the app that he was using and it's called Libib. Yeah, L-I-B-I-B. He said Lib- yeah, L-I-B-I-D. Oh, he, he I, I might have to try that. Excellent yeah, I might, I might check it out. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, folks. Well, listen, if you'd like to deep dive with us today in the extended edition of this podcast, we're going to talk about um, what writers get wrong about professions. So we're going to deep dive not just into journalism, but the, the typical things that you need to avoid when you are you have a character maybe that uh, isn't in a career or profession that you're you're used to. And we're also going to have a big dive with Mr. State on how to build a character. So if you if you ever mm. wanted to kind of like, I and mean, they say character is the most important thing in your novel, like the strength of your character, how to build a character. So we're going to have a real big deep dive on that. So if that's interest, if that's of interest to you, then please pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and sign up to uh, support the show as a patron. Or if you're in the Academy, you get all this lovely stuff on the Bestseller Academy app that we have, which is something very secretive and exciting. If you're part mm. of the app, you get access to all kinds of brilliant information on the go. So uh, we'll see you on the other side. So, Mark, that was the uh, extended that we just did. And in it, something came up. We were going to challenge people. And we want to share this with everyone because it's too good to keep <laughs> the extended <laughs> alone. So here's the challenge, folks. If, you, um, if you're researching a book or you've got a certain character that you're working on and, or there's something you want to go see and experience, go and ask somebody who has the experience and go and spend a day with them. And we want to challenge you to do some of the bizarrest and weirdest and funniest days out 
as an author, because you can do that. We were saying in the extended how as an author, if you tell someone you're writing a book, the door usually swings open. Opens doors. Right. Really so, yeah. um, and we were talking about one of our academy members who's spent a day on a, on a sheep farm. Mark, you were talking about how you got to see Stanley Kubrick's kind of like archives, archives, you know, in a private tour. So <laughs> we were putting this challenge out to everyone. This is part of one of the beautiful, fun things about being an author is you get to go and talk to people, experience things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. And we want you to tell us about what you've done so we can have some fun with it. But also, Stand back. I'm a novelist. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. But we also want to inspire other people to do this as well because we think authors spend too much time on their butts in their little room and not out in the real world kind of gaining some amazing experiences. This is an open card that we have. So, yeah, let's let's make the most of it and see what we get from that, folks. But Now, Mark, social media this week, we've got some exciting stories happening haven't we well uh bill group who is uh part of our academy uh william group rather uh, we call him bill well it's you know we're, we're, we're all friends terms, in the academy so. yeah absolutely um he's saying well saying taking feather taking a feather out of mr stay's cap i decided to start selling my books on my website at, after hours of setup and reset up not to mention re-reset up it is finally up and running readers can get signed copies of either paperback or hardcover and even some memorable quotes on t-shirts all i need now is readers well look, i love bill's <laughs> books they're really really good fun i'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can check it out uh it's uh, w jgroupjunior.com uh, and he's got a shop there and it is important I do I, I mean I was inspired by Cueve McDonald who has opened his own store on his website and I've been you know every week I'm selling books and packing them and sending them off to people and signing them and stuff like that and it's it's not just about the money it's about building that relationship with your readers i think it's so important now uh, i i set up a well i say i set up my um web guy set up uh, a woocommerce store and there's shopify and people like that it cost a couple of hundred quid to do but it paid for itself in the first week and um it's just uh it's it's ace and i love it but uh, yeah so william congrats really, congrats, really and, it, and so. i love it you know you were inspired by Queeve. Bill's inspired by you. Who's going to be inspired by Bill? Like, it's the, I love this. Yeah. So if, you, if you're yeah. going to set up your own store and you've got some experiences of some great things that have happened, then share it with us. Let's, let's talk about it on the podcast. Absolutely. Talking about inspiration, uh, we've got a lovely tweet from uh, Charlie, who is at Love Charlemagne on Twitter. And she says, I'm new to your podcast, but absolutely love this sesh with Scarlett. This is Scarlett Braid uh, episode last week. She said, it was so positive and inspiring. I could relate to everything you discussed and feel motivated to continue writing my first novel with confidence. Uh, you guys are pure joy to listen to. Thank you. Uh, and she she got into a conversation with Scarlett on Twitter and she says, you know, thank you so much. I want to inspire and help others and share my experiences. Always wanted to write a book as a kid, but didn't have anything to say. And now I do. Congrats on your book, Scarlett, and best wishes for the next one. Isn't that lovely? Oh. You know, guests inspiring listeners who are writing books. And, and this is brilliant. So uh, thanks so much for that, Charlie. Really, really appreciate it. Fantastic, really appreciate Charlie. It. Yeah. And actually, there's something else to celebrate, Mark, which you might not even be on your mm. list because you might deem it a self-promotion, but it isn't. Um, Unwelcome was nominated. We haven't mentioned this yet, have we? No, we was haven't, have we? No. nominated for Best Thriller yeah. in the in the National, national, film, national film, film Awards. Yeah, yeah. Film Awards. UK, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. mate. 
Thank you, thank you. I have no idea. I mean, I don't think That's, we'll win, but, but it's no, nice to be nominated. The nomination is phenomenal. And like some of, you know, I was looking through some of the other um, categories and, and, and there's like serious films yeah, on yeah, that yeah. list. Like this is not like some kind of like indie kind of like only, let's give everyone a little bit of promote. This is a proper, proper award. So congratulations, yeah. Mike. You must be absolutely Thanks. thrilled. Yeah, it came out the blue. It came completely yeah. out the blue. It's just one of these things that, uh, yeah. So we'll see. Um, I, I, you know, it's kind of out of my hands. But like I said, I don't think we'll win. But it's a nice little feather in the cap. Uh, it's nice to even have a cap. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Sorry, interrupted uh, you. Are there any more wins to share? Well, this is this is a weird kind of win uh, because this has turned into. Now, older listeners might be familiar with the the four Yorkshiremen sketch, which Monty Python did, but actually predates Monty Python, where people are sort of bragging about how poor they were <laughs> when they were um, uh, young. We've got a thing going on over on the on the in the BXP group over on Facebook, which started by Mark Hood. He said, "Is this a record?" I received a form rejection this morning to a submission I made in December 2021. And he says, since I self-published the book in question three months ago, it's probably just as well it was a no. And so everyone's coming out the woodwork. So Karen's story, uh, she had uh, she had one from 9th of December 2021, which beats Mark by about a week. <laughs> uh, Robin Sarti talks about one that she submitted in March 2019, uh, which was later rejected in October 2021. So it's two years, six months, 25 days. And everyone's pitching in. This is actually more common than anyone is actually admitting to. The fact that you are getting rejections years after the fact, wow. after the book's been published elsewhere. That uh, So, yeah, you were lucky. I was rejected four years after submission. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, if anyone's got uh, anything, anything you can beat that, let us know. I, I was rejected. I was rejected oh. four months before I even thought of the idea of the book I was going to write. <laughs> You know, I've but yeah, like I think that, yeah. I think it's brilliant. I think it's uh, it's a reminder to to revel in the rejections because you know they are rites of passages. It means you're out there trying. Um, Absolutely, I just it just suddenly made me think. I bet you, I bet you, in the history of writing, a best-selling author. I'm thinking like J.K. Rowling level, like you know Stephen King level, have received rejections for their first novel five years after it was actually published and became a multi-million best Made into a movie, yeah. <laughs> Not, after the, after you, the please, theme park was opened. After the theme park, yeah. Please, please, please. If you are an author, any author who's had massive success with your book and then got a rejection letter for, for something you sent years ago, please send us the letter. We want to publish it on the website and have some fun with it. Because, you know, I think we also need to remember that, you know, rejections are also just people's opinions. And, um, you know, better off that they're, they they let us know early on, hopefully, yeah. that they're not interested so we can get on and find the people that do want to publish our books. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Love it. Brilliant. Well, Mark, if people want to contact us uh, on social media... It's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Just pop over to Facebook for uh, look up Bestseller Experiment. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Bestseller XP. And pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com. There is a contact tab there where you can email us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've been inspired uh, by James Nocty, by Scarlett Bray, by any of the guests that we've had on the podcast, then give us a rating, subscribe, give us a little review uh, wherever, you, wherever you get your podcast from. That sort of thing helps us a lot. And a big thank you as always to our editors, JD and Dave. 
Absolutely. And if you would like to get a weekly update on the podcast, what's coming out, what we learn and what you can learn from every interview and episode we do, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter tab and you will get a weekly update from us. And of course, if you haven't yet signed up for the 200 word challenge, what are you waiting for? Build the habit of writing for a lifetime. 200wordchallenge.com. Uh, for the free challenge can you write let's just set you a little mini target can you write 200 words a day for seven days and maybe just maybe you'll write that book much much quicker than you ever thought and again if you would like to join the academy if you like the uh, idea of mark and i being your coaches you'd like to do some of the 30 plus courses we've got on there you'd like to get the bestseller academy app access to everything we've ever recorded on the podcast all the deep dives all the extended editions and so much more pop along to academy bestsellerexperiment.com to find out more so Mr Stay thank you very much I look forward to it again next week it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye folks goodbye